The following was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. This is the United Podcast Network. Welcome to the Quirky Dog Podcast, inspired by some of the quirkiest dogs you can ever imagine and the owners who love them. This podcast is brought to you by the quirky couple themselves, Scott and Jess Williams. Their aim is to educate and entertain. Here's Scott and Jess. Welcome, guys, and happy Wednesday and happy December. We're into December. Final stretch of 2022. I cannot wait to see it go, if we're being honest. Um, We have a very special guest here today. We have someone on who we met the same weekend that Scott and I actually met one another um, many years back. I think it's probably 12 or 13 years ago now. His name is John Wade, and he's from London, Ontario. But first, we are going to start with the quirky tip of the day. Hang on. Good job. Oh, another new pig. Market yeah. basket, man. Those pigs have a lot to say. All right. So, Chrissy, if you could just scroll my photos real quick, even while I do this pitch. Um, this water jug is from her. This sweatshirt that says, fun fact, I don't care, is from her. And she's doing a bunch of crate tags, super cute ornaments um, for the holidays and everything else. So, it's still the first week of December. You have time to order. This company is called Beclectic. How cute is that? B- B-E. B, no, it's Becklectic because oh. her name's Beck. So it's oh, B okay. and then, but Eclectic's within. And the Instagram handle, if you want to check her out on Instagram, is Becklectic, B-E-C-L-E-C-T-I-C dot arts. You're going to put a link in there somewhere? She's Becklectic's arts on Facebook too. No, people can find her, but she has all kinds of cute stuff for the holidays. And um, I'm wearing the sweatshirt and the jug. So if you're still looking for holiday gifts, check her out. She is a U.S.-based company right out of California. All right. So without further ado, John Wade is very well known um, up in the upper parts. Uh, he's from London, the great Ontario. White North. <laughs> the Great White North. And uh, he's also known as Ask the Dog Guy. So, John, thank you so, so much for joining us here today. When we first met um, him back, I don't know, like I said, 12 or 13 years ago, the three of us just had so much fun at this seminar together. So we're so glad to have him on here today. John, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. I've really been looking forward to it. Yeah, awesome. So tell us a little bit about your background in dogs, just so our listeners and viewers can get an idea of where you come from and everything. I actually started a little less uh, out of a love of dogs, which that always kind of cracks me up because I get so many people contacting me, tell me they want to be a dog trainer because they love dogs, but so many of them seem to just hate people (laughs) that you wonder if, if they just defaulted to dogs. But I've always loved dogs, but I just find I've always found the study of behavior interesting. And when my I first got exposed to dogs in sort of that obedience, it was that geometric pattern around pylons, stare at the dog like you're trying to bend a spoon with the power of your mind, and the dog's fixated on some food item. And I, I thought, that's not behavior as I understand it when you're teaching life skills. And so I just kind of pursued it from there. And it it just took off. I I I, I have a what I I think is a somewhat unique uh, uh, outlook on it that I don't think should be unique. I think it should be more the norm. But uh, yeah, it's something I'm pretty passionate about. So I really do enjoying this uh, enjoy doing this sort of exposure. Yeah, and John's doing a ton of virtual stuff right now. So if you guys are listening, no matter where you're located, if you're interested in working with him personally um, after hearing us on the podcast today, please reach out. There are links in the episode description. So we're going to talk mostly about companion dogs here today, because that's what John's dealing with. That's what Scott and I are dealing with. Um, and that's what most people own, right? Like we are here, 
We're dealing with how to help pet owners enjoy their dogs better and live with them more harmoniously. So we're going to discuss a little bit about ideology and methodology because there's a lot of different rhetoric about out there about what the best angle is and what you should and what you shouldn't do and just kind of break that down. So John, from your perspective and what you're seeing with your virtual clients and your in-person clients in the past, where do you stand on this topic of approaching ideology and methodology with companion dogs? All right. Well, I want to begin by saying that my criticism, any that I might have here uh, uh, in a moment, is not for individual people. This is looking at dog training in, in general. And in in North America, we don't expose our youth to uh, the concept of critical thinking and what is a logical fallacy and what's a cognitive bias, unless it's post-secondary and usually only in the harder sciences. And since we've had the, the advent of this information generation device called the internet and then social media, without filtering the information that you get, mm -hmm. um, I, like I always say, social media is a lot like a Petri dish for stupidity and ignorance as much as everything else on the planet right now. Yeah, You have to filter what you get. And we've seen an evolution in certain, see my 30 plus year career here in uh, how you train a dog. And eight, about 80% of what we see now is a concept that is was more of a reaction to what we used to do. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it it's this, you got to be all positive all the time, ignore bad behavior, reward good behavior, use treats. Um, uh, they, they will constantly tell you that it's science driven and use catchphrases like force free. The trouble is, is if you go on PubMed, which is a resource for pretty much every scientific paper on the planet, is you won't find a single scientific paper to support that in the context of teaching life skills. If you're going to look at how you're going to shape the behavior for teaching tricks, it's a beautiful tool. It's wonderful and it's fun. But for teaching life skills, it's like uh, obedience, the ideology that's behind it. Like I would say, look, if my mother and father raised me by ignoring my bad behavior and rewarding my good behavior. I don't care how lavishly they, they would have done that uh, reward. I'd be dead or in jail by now. That's yeah. not really how we learn uh, life skills. And while treats can, they can, and I do use them in some contexts, but rarely. Um, to me, it's a lot like if, if, if the two of you in front of me have enough $50 bills right now, you're going to be amazed what you get me to say and do. But if somebody shows up with a $100 bill, we, we've, we've got a gap in our communication that needs to be bridged. And when you look at the average way that a dog, a wolf, an ape, or a human being raises youngsters and teach, and you look at the parallels, like if we, we get rid of anything that's anthropomorphic, unique to the species, you're going to find that, you know, there are certain things that we all do that typically are not involved a lot in, in companion dog training. So there was that sort of 80% of is to me that we see when we get online or we talk to the average dog trainer is an ideology that uh, it's, it's as if the movie The Lady and the Tramp was a documentary on behavior, and yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. Uh, but then there, there's this sort of framing that if you don't do that and embrace that, then you must be going back to the old ways. So the sort of things that early in my career, it was might is right. You know, the idea of being alpha dominant pack leader. And to me, it will impact behavior, but it's it's not to me science-based. Like, uh, it, not in the context of 
life skills. Certainly in ethology, we'll see examples of dominance. You know, right now it's November, so the deer will be rutting and the males will be fighting for dominance. And that will establish sort of a relationship that allows them to pass on certain genes. But it's be like, Scott, if you and I go down to a bar and we don't behave, we meet the bouncer. And the bouncer changes, but we don't go home to our spouses and go, you know, if we ever have kids, I got a new way to raise them. <laughs> it, 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 it's this sort of thing that we see in the dog world where there's a regurgitation and a, like a parroting of things that came before and not really using things like evolutionary psychology and biology and ethology and the other things that do help us understand behavior overall. So that was a really long answer to a very short question. <laughs> no, but I, I appreciate it. And it, it, it's true. It's like, you know, if you're a balance trainer, you're doing some medieval abusive thing. And I mean, Scott is a great example of that. He's been a balance trainer for 25 years and you've evolved a lot. Yeah. I, when I, the people that I initially trained with were pretty old school in their training methodologies, you know, and they... Absolutely. They That's were, all there was. Yeah. That's all we had yeah. to draw on. And they were yeah. also working with very high-drive dogs that could handle whatever you dished out to them. That's right. And yeah. they were also, you know, the dog would bounce back from even an unfair correction. It was like, it would be okay two minutes later, where the average dog doesn't have the the drive, and, and nor should it have to deal with unfair corrections and all that stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was a different yeah. world, and uh, and it took a long time. I mean, I was always looking for something more because the training itself, as much as I wanted to be involved in the dog sports that I was doing, some of the the methods there were, I would say, upsetting to say the least to me. I dealt with it. I thought well, this is part of you know what if you're going to get involved in this, this is what you got to do. But I was, I was also, I went to the, that, the Clicker Expo, one of the first things. I was always looking for something that was just easier to, for me to digest as far as, is there an easier way to do this that's easier on the dogs? You know, and that, when I went, so I went from one extreme to the other. And I saw that neither one was great. You know, I mean, one, the, the hardcore old school extreme worked if you had a really strong high drive dog. But still, yep. you could train that dog better if it wasn't just all force also, you know? Yeah. But then the other side of the coin was the all positive where if you have a, you know, very strong dog who is somewhat uh, selfishly motivated, they're judging what you have and deciding, no, like you said, I don't care about your treat or whatever you have there. I'd rather go do this or I'd rather go bite the bad guy than play with your ball right now type thing. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So it was just finding a balance between... I got caught in those two extremes early on for a long time. And some of the hardcore trainers that were really good, they'd say, don't drink the Kool-Aid about doing this stuff all positive. It's just not going to happen. And I would not challenge them, but I was always trying to make it happen with the least amount of aversives. And being yeah. having when I started the dog training business, I learned really quick, I'm not going to be able to pr provide a good service to people because they don't have enough time and they don't want to be dog trainers. They're not going to spend six months with protocols yeah. that are so involved. Yeah. And and the other side of that is even today, I get people that have spent as long as I've had people tell me 18 months, they've been doing a class after class with the all positive methodology to the point where they're just, they're just sick. They're just like, they feel like, it doesn't work. Like I don't know what to they do. They feel like failures too. Yeah, and I, I'll have yeah. I'll do one or two classes with them, and the dog will be miraculously better. 
Yeah. They just it's can't true. believe it. They can't believe the difference in one or two classes. And the dog is not hiding and cringing from me. When I go back to see them, the dog's running up to see me, excited to see me. Happy. No, that's right. Yeah, now, yeah. you you touch. There's two things you mentioned. One one was uh, you know sort of uh, realizing the clientele, but you also use. And I just want to touch on this here. Uh, you use the word balanced, and I have evolved from using that because I find there's a lot of trog trainers now who say they're balanced, and what they mean is they're using a little bit of each thing. Right. But each but. It's it's the problem is is that there are more colors in the palette than those two colors. Right. And to me, fully balanced is a is a little bit more broad. And if we if we kind of it, like to me, like a good part of it's just relationship. A child knows the structure in the household because of the way their day goes. All day, it's like, did you brush your teeth? Come here, let me smell it. Get over here, get over here, go do them again. Is your backpack back, your homework done? Do you, like there's lots of little teeny messages where they're being directed, not given much of a choice as to right. how outcome, but they've got somebody in their lives who's not telling them to get a surgeon's level of washing of their hands if they're four years of age. They're, 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 they're moving and shaping and it develops an understanding of who's the teacher and who's the the student. And to your other point, I think that's true. I think a lot of dog trainers come from, let, let's say the, the the police world, uh, and then they move into the companion dog world or um, the uh, like a sporting dog uh, okay. world, and not in the uh, protection uh, sports. Well, I, I didn't actually mean mean that group, but I meant more of the uh, like um, agility. Yeah, agility. That yeah, that performance sort of performance dogs. Yeah. And don't realize at all that has almost nothing to do with companion dog training. Yeah. And so they don't hail, hail, John Wade, hail, hail. Yep. <laughs> and the biggest mistake they mistake is they realize they don't realize that dog trainers are as a group generally weird in that their lives revolve around their dog. Yeah. But our clients, there's only so much of them left over the end of the day. And so, you know, to me, I always teach clients some basic things like, okay, let's teach the dog in the kitchen not to be underfoot. Go to the mat, stay, don't move till we say come in a very, very micro manner. But so we don't need to get into the details there. But the idea is that I don't tell them to t go to the mat, sit, lay down and stay. Like there's no return on the investment to the average client for that at that point. Yeah. Right. I like the idea once we start to shape in the right direction where it's okay, come now sit and await further instructions. But I think a lot of people get frustrated. And you said that earlier, Jess, that people get frustrated because they they're failing, but they're yeah. being set up to fail. Like how many times does somebody learn how to walk a dog yeah. from a dog trainer and then go out in their neighborhood and fail? Well, who the heck, teaches a child to do geometry at the gateway of Disneyland. Yeah. Like that's just ridiculous. Like if you can't get the dog to walk in your living room, that's not a great place to start for an amateur handler. Yeah. Now, and I always tell people, I can get your dog to do it, but I don't want to have to book an appointment with a therapist afterwards or have the dog need to see the chiropractor because yeah. I chose a I chose an environment that was so stimulating that I just ended up turning into a yank and crank might as right trainer right. to try to keep my ego intact. No, no, I, I want to just start junior kindergarten and then kindergarten. And I think it's like group classes. 
You know, again, you don't hold an AA meeting on a Friday night in, in a, a bar. bar. It's half price. Yeah, it's half price drink night, and women are drinking for free. Yeah. Like it's that. It, it's havoc in in that. Mm-hmm. But that sort of thing is prolific in the amateur dog training world, yes. and I use that term all the time. And it does tick a lot of trainers off that I would say that, but. It's not how how their training is not how I define training. And so it's not a criticism of them in, as individuals, but it's I, I don't think this is ever going to turn into a profession until we actually look at this uh, and, and draw on a little more science. Well, and we have to we have to support our clients, right? Like we are there. It, it's very easy to see how are dogs walking on the streets in London, Ontario? How are dogs walking on the streets in Boston compared to 10 years ago? You know what I mean? Like these simple things of just getting the dog out of the house, even if it's not a big problem dog, become like mountains of an issue. And I just want to speak to that point about performance dogs, because frankly, you know, we, we all met at a seminar, um, actually that was, you know, for e-collars. It was like an e-collar kind of conference type of situation. And I came from that performance dog world, right? So I, yeah. it is very simple. If I'm doing canine entertainment, you know, I'm doing fairs and theme parks. I have dogs with good drive, Frisbee, agility, all this stuff. When you have a sport dog type of clientele, meaning you have a facility and people are coming to take agility classes or nose work classes, those owners are already tenfold invested in their dogs, I would say, compared to the normal pet dog owner. And I'm not knocking any pet dog owners, but just like what you said, there's only so much time in the day to get it done and their frustrations are just rising up above their head. So the people that, you know, look and judge people, trainers like us and, you know, names like you, you know, you're not actually out there in the thick of it doing this in the streets with people. And we are seeing dozens, if not hundreds of people a year, and you're helping dozens, if not hundreds of people a year virtually. Like, we're trying to do the actual work here, and people need help. And these dogs aren't getting great direction. So I really appreciate your perspective on all of that. I think we have an increasing number of dogs in North America because of this movement to an ideology versus uh, because of the two ideologies, let's say Midas, right, maybe 20% and 80% of the, you know, it's, it's got to be treat. Um, they are um, like the 20%, most clients are not going to do that. They, they, yeah. they just don't want to do that. Midas, right. And, and nor, nor should they, but the other ones end up, they end up frustrated because they get to that point of no return where they go, I've done everything that you've said, but when I come home from a walk, one of my arms is longer than the other. Uh, And they're not looking for Lassie. They just want practical. And most of our dogs are under house arrest now because Mm -hmm. they don't actually like how many things that we, I want to get a dog and you start visualizing, I'm going to go hiking. I'm going to go camping. I'm going to take my dog when I go fishing. And most people can't take their dog out there. Most people answer their door if somebody's at the door, the person on the other side of the door here, somebody's at the door, get the dog, grab the dog, put the dog yeah. in the backyard. And then the person opens their door a crack like they're naked all the time. <laughs> yeah. because yeah. They can't, they're so they're afraid. Yeah. To, yeah. The, the dog, dog could bite. Like, the dog could run yeah. away. I understand. We've seen it. I, I'm, you're preaching to the choir. We see it left and right. One thing I wanted to mention, you talked about the relationship uh, with the dog and you used that analogy of checking a kid's breath. Did you brush your teeth? Go back and do it and all that kind of stuff. And that, to me, seems like the hardest thing for me to help the person get their head around is this relationship with your dog. Because the obedience is simple to me. I mean, teaching a dog how to walk on a leash is relatively simple. And they can see what I'm doing. And they may not have the technique. They may need to work and work to get their technique better in whatever they're teaching their dog. But it's all the in-between stuff when they're not actively training is where the real training happens. 
And, yeah. you know, they, sometimes people will say to me, I want to do the boarding and training. How many sessions a day are you doing with my dog for training? And I tell them from the moment the dog wakes up, and I let that dog out of a crate. There's training happening right Let's there. Let's just be honest. Jess lets the dog out of the crate. It, it doesn't matter <laughs> if it's Jess. She's, she's, Tell the story how you want, but let's be honest. The point is they, they have to work within the constraints of what Jess wants them to do. You they're don't just burst getting, out of the crate. They're always yeah. getting trained. That's yeah, a 24-7 thing when they're living with us. And that doesn't have to be the way they live with their owners, but it is important that the owners can see that their dog, too, can be successful and learn and isn't this, like, problem dog that has to be medicated, you know? But I well, do. Yeah, the dog's learning 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whether you're teaching or not. Mm-hmm. Right, whether and you're then, conscious of it or not, yeah. Yeah, sure. And so a, a big, what, one of the tips that I, I use with my clients is I, I have a, a couple of rhymes I always teach them. If your dog can't be caught, your dog can't be taught. If the dog starts to think it's stronger, it's not going to listen to you any longer. Now, why is that? Because remember I was talking about kind of that Venn diagram of higher order social species. What do we all do? Well, one thing we all do is we are faster and stronger, more agile than our kids until they hit about one third of the path to their a- adulthood. And Jess, if I gave you a two-year-old kid right now, and I just did not come back for five years, you'd start supervising that kid like their lives depend on it, because you it would, yeah. and you would uh, um, uh, you, you would learn to start to read that kid. You know, when a little kid starts, do you need to go to the bathroom? Yeah, you know, get, go on, again, you go. You're and reading we, and, behavior, <laughs> right? And yeah. they would kid would look at you and go, "That's the she's not asking me; she's telling me." Mm-hmm. Look, and five years later, there'd be a normal kid. But look at the average dog. You know, the average dog hits 10 weeks and is faster than the average human being on the planet. So if I gave you a two-year-old kid who was faster than you, more agile than you, and maybe maybe even stronger than you, and did not have fingernails, they had little teeth on the end of their fingers, yeah. so everything they touched, you, you felt a little bite. In five years, the police would know you on a first-name basis, and so would children's aid. <laughs> So that access, that having the client with their dog day in, day out, like if I took a board and train, the dog's dragging a leash around. Yeah. And the length of the leash is directly proportional to how fast I feel <laughs> in the environment. And that right. dog gets way more freedom than any other dog pretty much that's not dragging a leash on. Because I can go for a hike with that dog, dragging 30 feet. If I say come and the dog looks at me and says, I'll check my day timer, I go, well, it sucks to be you because I'm not asking you. Yeah. If yeah. you come here, that's what come means here. Now yeah. you go. And yeah. it, like it's it's access as well because the dog is learning all the time. But dog trainers typically put a dog on a leash in the class. Mm-hmm. And they don't realize, well, why not do what – it's going to happen when they go home. No leashes. Well, because there's no training going to go on. Leave the lead on and supervise the dog properly. And you'll catch the dog eight or ten times they take a run at the door. You, the dog jumps. You're in a better position to at least put the brakes on it. Sure. But, yeah. And then even begin a little lesson as to, I always tell clients, look, your goal is to teach a dog. You're not bad. I'm not bad. But this here is what I need you to focus on. Yeah. And there's a little pattern you use in behavior to, to achieve that. But if the dog can't be caught, you typically let it go. And if you've got a kid and you're winning two out of 10 in a day, you're not going to get anywhere. The yeah. kid's going to be delinquent. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to say right now, I don't want a two-year-old slower or faster than me as any kind of gift for the podcast. So don't send me any two-year-olds, please. <laughs> well, I just um, keep them in a crate. Yeah. No, we, we don't want any children around. Talk to me a little bit um, about the science that you kind of rely upon, like going back to Skinner, like scientists that we all learned the basis of science on and kind of yeah, just discussing that. A bit. Uh, Skinner wasn't the problem. Uh, Pryor was. 
Um, it, it was um, like if you actually followed Skinner's work, that's fine for certain things, um, but uh, it ignores things like I used to say, like evolutionary psychology. Like one of the things I always tell clients: look, by the time a dog is eighteen months of age, the average dog is going to be aggressively friendly or aggressively territorial when somebody comes to the door, mm-hmm. and eight out of ten times that dog is allowed to look out a window all day. Mm-hmm. When it, at, at, at just sort of to look at stuff and people don't see a problem with that. But if we look at it from an evolution perspective, and this is where, you know, they, they just get too focused on Skinner and, and they, they forget, no, there's a lot of research out there that shows, you know, dogs have territorial drive. So let's just pretend that, that, that Scott and Jess and I are 23,000 years ago sitting around our campfire and our wolfy dogs start to bark. Well, we go grab our spears and we get ready for action. There's either food afoot or somebody sneaking up on us. And then our, we evolved as a society into an agrarian level, which isolated farming type things. And our dogs would bark and sound the alarm if there were varmints around. And if I showed up to see if you needed any help, there'd be sound. It's it's a normal part of their hard wiring. And that's one of the reasons that we meshed our paths mm-hmm. is they contributed to our success and survival. But we live in urban environments now. And so when a dog's looking out the window, those same evolutionary triggers are being triggered, but so frequently that the dog can't help but switch into, uh, not Skinner, but Pavlov, where you get a conditioned response when they get they get triggered by, you know, territory or, or prey. And then at the very least, you're going to see typically excessive barking in the household. And then so people call me in and I say to the dog, well, why are you being such an idiot? And the dog goes, I'm not an idiot. They have no idea how many people tried to break into the house yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. exhausted. They'd yeah. have nothing if it wasn't for me. Yeah. Like unsupervised time, it's how it's like leaving a kid alone in the mall unsupervised, yeah. and then they come home and they go, "You're not going to believe this place. There's chocolate bars everywhere. <laughs> Do you want one?" Yeah, it's nothing the matter with the dog or the child. Yeah. It's that when we are maturing, we require guidance. And what we often do with dogs is withdraw the guidance and then let evolution take over. Like the, the sort of the, the, the evolution psychology of sound the alarm, there's something going on there. And it's way worse with some breeds than it is with others, but all dogs have it in there. So that's kind of an example where I'd say, okay, so you got Skinner and his four quadrants and that's great. And it's, it's a powerful tool that one should always keep in mind. Most dog trainers, they kind of bastardize it and go, well, we're not going to use these two quadrants. We only like these two quadrants. And I mean, if we go watch an obedience competition right now, it's going to be impressive. It certainly is to the average person. And you go, wow, I wish my dog would do. But when the person leaves the ring, cut their leash and take their treats and see how long it takes them to get their dog to the car. The dog learned a pat. It's like a theatrical performance. It's great. In that context, but for our clients, they don't live in the theater. Yeah, they they're living in random doorbells going off, uh, you know, going up and down stairs and not getting upended. Like the practical things that I teach dogs are there to improve the overall safety and enjoyment of everybody in the household, including the dog. But we 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 get into this sort of oh, this is obedience because they say <laughs> I went to a. I went to the, uh, you know, the super dogs thing. Yeah. Yeah. I went, I went with a friend of mine. It was a, a vet friend of mine. Uh, we were at that the Royal winter fair and uh, um, we grabbed something to eat and we went into the, the, the arena area and they wouldn't let me in. And I said, why? And they said, Oh my God, they recognize me. <laughs> <laughs> but they said, well, you can't bring food in. And I said, well, wh- why not? Well, because the food may distract the dogs. 
oh, what kind of dogs are in there? Well, German Shepherds and, you know, Malinois and Border Collies. Are you telling me that a police officer or a shepherd cannot bring a lunch on, into the, the, the their working environment and ha have the dogs perform? It's fine for the movies and TVs and that sort of show, but the, the, that 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 territory that is our world, the client dog world, it's become blurred and it's, it's just the wrong tool in the tool bag for the job. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Everything is much more diluted now. So, and I want to ask you as far as people that you either train from Canada or wherever else your clients are, are you seeing a lot of kind of pressure being put on people like from the vets and from other trainers, like, do you have people coming to you kind of out of distress? Like, well, this is how I was told to do it. And it just seems like so hard. Yeah. And so many, do you, do you get that vibe from the people you're working with? Yeah, they're, they are. Um, I see it's kind of split. I get a lot of pups now and, and it's just because, um, like uh, if people like Google me, uh, uh, locally here, like I've got like a hundred five-star reviews from people who've succeeded. And so that's a different type of client than the, the, the ones that are frustrated. The ones that I get like from England, I had one in Mongolia and India and that sort of thing. They're generally having trouble because they have used the tools that the internet tells them yeah. like for pups, nine out of 10 people get, you know, you know, I don't, I, again, this is another reason, uh, uh sort of looking at evolution, um, and, and applying that, like, biggest problem with pups is this melding and nipping and jumping people yep. have, get frustrated with that and the internet tells them and the vets tell them and the vet techs tell them and the dog trainers tell them we'll redirect with the toy use a timeout blah 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 um not once in the history of the world has that ever worked um if i well let's say i come over and i bite you jess and you give me a new fly fishing rod i'm more than likely going to bite <laughs> yeah. you again yeah. as, as, as not yeah in in the human world they started doing this thing called a timeout with a child. And a lot of child psychologists really are questioning the wisdom of that because just from a practical application, I mean, think of the how cognitive develop, cognitively developed a child must be in order to sit by themselves and rehearse what they did and then have a discussion with a parent afterwards. To, and how many parents have the time to have that discussion? It's And then say, tell it, you know what happens in nature? If a mother dog puts her puppy in a timeout, she comes back and there's blood, bones, and fur. Something ate the puppy. Yeah. It's, it's She deals with it in the moment and then she moves on. Yeah. So they keep running into these pat answers that um, are – so I always th – this is my own hypothesis here. I've seen no no research uh, 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 to, but I've also, why the heck do puppies have razor blades in their mouths? Because those razor blades come out about three to four weeks of age. Yeah. They're still nursing at that point. So there's, yeah. they're not any hard food. And even when they stop nursing in the wild, they're eating sort of a regurgitated version of, di uh, of what they'll be eating. Eventually it's regurgitated by, um, those coming in from a hunt. And so what's the point of razor blades? It's because, like, there was a, an ethologist, his name was Conrad Lorenz. He's, he, he described something, he called it baby, well, he, it was in German, but it was baby schema is the way it translated. And baby schema is that little tingle you get when you hold a baby or a puppy or a kitten that makes you feel nurturing, mm -hmm. loving. Now, it does not trigger parenting. It's, it's, it's a, that's a different type of thing. But you feel love, and it alters the way we use your tone and body language, which is one of the things on that Venn diagram. But with a puppy, 
who's nursing and razor blades start to make contact with nipples, you can, by God, be sure a mother dog is going to react to that and introduced ugly mom. So she's going to move a little bit out of baby schema into and add another tool into her tool bag. Mm -hmm. And that's the only reason I could think of. Well, that's why they're there. I don't know if that's why they're in place from an evolutionary perspective, but I know that's a byproduct where she she moves out of the I love you, I love you, I love you into I still love you. However, yeah. when yeah. I say no, this yeah. is how I say no. Yeah. And she begins to use that. Now, compare that to what dog trainers are telling us to do. She's using that. Those teeth become, and with litter mates, the same thing, a tool to understand structure in relationship. Who's the teacher and who's the student? Takes a little longer with the pups because they got a lot more energy. Doesn't take very long with a mother dog. She'll pretty much solve the the too too rough a, 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 um, a when they're nursing within twenty four hours to seventy two hours. But now we, we we eliminate that because it is cruel and unusual, and we, we're going to redirect with a toy or use a timeout or pretend we're hurt. Do the actual opposite yeah. of, of what would happen in nature, and then three months later. Oh, look, it worked. Yeah. No, puppies are designed to outgrow it. It yeah. didn't work. You can wear a baseball cap, point the brim north, and the exact same techniques will work if you do if you do that. Yeah. The problem is now when you're trying to teach life skills, come, stay, heal, the dog – I say to the average dog, so what do you think of the people you're living with? And the dog <laughs> goes, oh, my God, John, I won the lottery for dogs. I love my new roommates. Now, I love the fact that they love them. But yeah. I don't think they should see them as a roommate. Yeah. We keep using roommate skills with pups, and then we have a harder time teaching them real life skills. Yeah. And the parenting skills, yeah, it's a great parallel for sure. Um, talk to us a little bit about your collar, because you had heard of the John Wade collar before we were at Robbins or not? I don't no, know. No, no, no. John, you introduced that to me, and uh, I think we probably picked up a, at least a couple of dozen of those collars from you early on, and we're, we're using them. Yeah. So that was an idea that you had come up with um, on your own. And it's a specific collar. I always loved it for like a super big Roddy that I didn't feel like there was a great slip collar for or a super tiny dog. I just always felt like if I was a little bit concerned about the dog, this collar was going to keep that pet dog safe. So, they weren't going to slip off the leash yeah. for sure. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. That's uh, so the, the idea behind it for me was, and, and this is the feedback I get from trainers who use the collar is, it, it's just a tool. And the problem with tools is never the tool. It's the fool on the end of the tool that causes the problems. Mm -hmm. So I always tell people, if you can't use the average dog training collar, I don't care what kind it is correctly, you're not going to be changing the diaper on my kid. Okay. You have to be able to use common sense and, and, and apply it. But I find that a lot of dogs, by the time the people get they start to get worried about <laughs> being able to keep their footing and that sort of thing, is they need a little bit of leverage to I, to interrupt the dog. Now, again, I don't want to. I don't want to, anything to turn into might is right, but I kind of want the dog to look at like you're saying, uh, uh, Jess, uh, like you're a big powerful dog. Yeah. Well, I want the dog to look at you after if you're using the right tool for the job and go, uh, Jess, yeah, have you been working out? Because <laughs> yeah. they've sensed that they don't have quite the same physical leverage, so. The problem with most collars is like if you put like a, a one of the the old Jake chain uh, chokers on, they end up down at dog's chest. Yeah, and that's a problem. The problem with the halties and the gentle leaders is one, dogs hate them, and two, it's a lot of pressure on cervical vertebrae, and it's a little too aversive for my 
a liking. So what I was looking for was something that would stay fairly high on. on so uh, here, I'll show you. I'll grab my dog here. Oh, hi, buddy. <laughs> yeah. So the idea here, here, I better put it this way, yeah. is that I just stuck a cord lock on this fabric yeah. so that when it goes over, I just put it behind their ears, under their jaw and slide it in. It doesn't stay up forever. Yeah. But And the reason for that is I the cord lock I used is purposefully the spring strength is enough that if you put it on too tight, it'll it loosen will up. back off on its own. So right. again, I'm trying to take in consideration. This isn't somebody of Scott or Jess's experience training the dog. This is somebody who can make little mistakes. So this way I prevent that from going south. So they put that on and then just do a little walking around in, 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 in the house. And, you know, we're going to the kitchen. The dog goes, we're going to the kitchen. I'll meet you there. And then you turn around and the dog goes, what the heck? And they go, how did you turn me so quickly? Yeah. And well, it's just because you got a different level of center of balance. Yeah. Now that like, I introduce equipment in a way that has the dog be able to process the difference rather than just dump them into the deep end of the pool. But whether you're using my power steering collar or whatever tool you're using, the goal is to teach the dog to exert self-restraint, not to rely on the tool. I mean, how many times have we seen dogs who people say, yeah, he walks really well on the leash and you look and well, no, he's not. It's like saying my kid swims really well. That's because we've done 10 years of swimming lessons and he always wears water wings. Yeah. Well, what the heck if he's wearing water wings, what happens if they come off? Well, down he goes. Yeah. Well, that's the problem with the equipment. And I don't ask people to teach a dog a perfect heel. That's a lot. That's complex. That's a yeah. difficult thing that 50% of service dogs fail. Mm -hmm. So I understand why they might go the tool route so they can come home and have their arms the same length. I get that. Uh, I com completely understand that. But for just teaching things like don't jump on me and in, in acquiring the dog's attention in a way the dog's going, oh, you're talking to me. Sometimes you need an alteration in the tool that you're using. Yeah, no, I agree. Sure. And we're all about that. Like if you're going to be using tools, we want it to be the dog wears nothing on it and it still listens. The whole thing is real world application. I want you to real quick touch on, because we were talking about it before we started recording, the physics that you were talking about as far as the weight of the dog, the weight of the person, all of that. Um, uh, I, th that was, I just, I liked the way that you spewed that off. I just want our listeners and viewers to hear that. Yeah. Well, uh, again, it, there, there is there, there's a there's a constant in nature. When you're raising a youngster, you're always faster and stronger, more agile, and hopefully you're using that in an intelligent way to keep them from crawling to the fireplace. You enter, you don't say, "Honey, the kindling temperature of wood is 451 degrees." You proceed. You grab them. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and and then you know, they're running towards the campfire or or whatever. Uh, there's a certain level of physicality, but you're always using tone and body language at the same time. Yeah. And that tone and body language eventually replaces one gets replaced with the other. So when young Jess is going out the door and somebody goes, Jess, where are you going? When are you coming home? Who are you going to be with? What's the phone are you going to add? I'm 14. Don't you trust me? Yeah, I trust you. I'm not trying to wreck your freedom. I'm trying. But there's a conversation with a tone that implies I'm not asking you. I'm telling. It's part of the pattern that you see when you're shaping behavior that, that you should be using a lot more of the physicality less. But the reality is pound for pound. Here's the, 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 the translation. If you have an 80 pound dog, indoors that's a 240 pound dog uh in the it's a 240 pound human being uh because yeah. a dog's got four wheel drive four on the floor low center of gravity outdoor with a little bit of drive and incentive you might as well replace the three and multiply times four the, the dog's 320 so 
having a tool in place that gives you an emergency brake level of putting the brakes on keeps you safer and the dog safer. Start making, oh, you can't use this tool, you can't do that tool. Well, that basically... You're, you're avoiding the actual issue. It's like when, uh, I, I don't know what it's like where you are, but they banned pit bulls here in, in Ontario many years ago. Well, I asked them, okay, you banned the pit bulls. Do you think the people who are causing problems are going to go buy hamsters? Yeah. Well, what do you think is going to happen if you if you eliminate the possibility for somebody to be able to keep from getting dragged into the road? Well, they're yeah. not going to take their dog anywhere. Yeah, and, and you took and the so, emergency brake out of the car, and that's never safe. <laughs> no, and, but... In fairness to the people that are somewhat rabid, and I don't think particularly rational about this, there are enough examples in the dog training world where tools are used strictly as an aversive, as a uh, um, as a as a might is right tool, and I think that's the problem is. The industry has to embrace the idea that sometimes you're you're picking the wrong classroom to introduce the tools in the first place, and then it's just defaulting into the into the uglier aspect of them. But you know, I've had veterinarians say, "Well, you can't use this, you can't use that," and I ask them, "Do you use a scalpel?" Yeah, yeah? I have seen a lot more uh, uh, veterinarians butcher a dog with a scalpel than I've seen dog people harm a dog with a dog training collar. It's not the tool. It's the fool at the end of the tool. And I would no more say get rid of this tool or that tool than I would say you can't use a scalpel anymore. Yeah. It, it, it's it's the person on the end of it. Do they have the intelligence to use it? I, I'm just doing a, a little YouTube video right now. Somebody wrote me. They got two dogs, Shih Tzus. So you can imagine uh, they moved from a home environment into a um, uh, an apartment. And so they got problems with excessive barking. So they put on an anti-bark collar that's the um, ultrasonic. Mm -hmm. And one dog's peeing itself and he's not barking because yeah. he gets punished every time the other dog yeah. barks. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's the wrong way to use that tool, but anybody can buy anything or, or get make a YouTube video. And next thing you know, um, people are making honest mistakes because these are companion dog owners. They don't think ahead or have had the experience that we have. Yeah, no, it's true. It's important what we say is actually helping the hunt public, not hindering them. Is there anything else we missed with John that you want to talk about? I feel like it's no, a we hit on a lot. Here. We hit on a lot of good points, and I tell you, John, I I thought I knew about how to train a dog when I got involved in dog training because I had been working with high drive protection dog, police dogs, and I felt really competent in being able to work with that type of a dog with that kind of drive. And when I got involved with um, companion dogs, it was a real eye-opener. Even some of them, they have no food drive. They have no toy drive. You know, they don't want to, you know, you get everything. You get everything. Severe anxiety. Every type of dog you can imagine out there, I mean, behaviorally. And um, it's only through working with hundreds and hundreds of dogs that uh, I get a good feel about how I'm going to approach the dog in front of me when I see it, you know, and it's just, there's no substitute for just the experience and working with a lot of dogs. And in my case, it was also doing a lot of things wrong, you know, trying something that well, didn't work. And, you know, and, and I was very lucky to work with some very good dog trainers, companion animal dog trainers that I was able to mentor with. And they, uh, you know, I'd say, well, how would you handle this? They'd take the dog and and just make it look flawless with, with some really difficult dogs. And it was just, you know, it's really a beautiful thing to see when you get someone that can connect with a, a problematic dog and help them learn how to behave without just yanking their head off. You know what I mean? 
Yep. And, and there's a like, like got to give yourself enough kudos in that, Scott, because there are tons of dog trainers out there who get exposed to the same sort of thing, but lack the openness to take it into consideration. And then they don't evolve. And again, when you've done anything like, like if you've been in this world, the training world for as long as I have, um, all you knew was yank and crank in the beginning. That sure. was basically all there was. And if you didn't evolve with that, then, uh, well, where are you now? Like it, you can get a lot of people who, you know, they come from that police world and they don't realize that, my God, this dog doesn't have the same level drive. It's not back. And they just blow through it. And they end up with a bunch of submissive dogs instead of subordinate dogs. So uh, like kudos to you for, for keeping an open mind and embracing those things and, and helping the, the profession evolve. Well, I never really wanted to do that kind of thing in the first place. I mean, I I got involved in, in dog training as a profession so that I could work with my dog all day long. That was really my, my the deciding fact was I wanted to be able to do a session with my dog in, at noon or two, and, and but also, you know, not be tied to a nine to five job. I could just work with my dog. And so by working with companion dogs, then we could get them out of the way in the morning. And then I could take the afternoon and work with my dog. And, and it was great. It worked out fine. But uh, it's really when you're working with dogs that have a lot of problems, not, I'm not talking about puppies now, but just a lot of rescues, a lot of aggression issues, a lot of extreme anxiety issues. It's work. It's not fun. I mean, you can make, I can make a lot of progress and I can help a lot of people. And I have a lot of people that are very happy with what I've helped them to do with their dogs, but it's not the joy of playing with dogs all day. You yeah, know we're not I mean? rolling on the f- round on the floor with puppies. And just like you said, many dog trainers just want to get involved in the industry because they love dogs, but you have to have a certain level of aptitude and you have to have a certain level of openness. So I'm so glad that you brought that point up. It, we're still learning. You're still learning. You know, I, maybe that's why we connected with you so well when uh, we all first met in Wisconsin, because if you don't want to continue to grow, then you're not continuing to help the industry, in my opinion. And um, it is constantly evolving. Yeah, and another tip I would give any aspiring or, or current dog trainer is, if it's not coming naturally right now, learn to love people because yeah. you have to make them relax. Yeah. And you got to get them to laugh a little bit and you have to be patient with them because they're the key to getting the dog, get rid of the baggage. Is But if you make them feel inadequate uh, because you're trying to feel superior. And we see that so much in this industry. Yeah. You're not doing dogs any good. Yeah. And you're no. just deflating people. Put on your John Wade uh, lookalike costume. Okay. Speaking of making people Look, laugh. We're going to close with this. <laughs> I, Scott. This was very important Scott goes, to me. Oh my gosh. I love his new look. I'm going to try to emulate it on the podcast. I said, babe, come on now. But it is December and we're getting in the spirit. I told Johnny looks like David Letterman, not Santa. <laughs> <laughs> Jess should have worn that. Jess should get a medal. Uh, Jess, is, Jess is putting in a lot of years here. John, it's so, so good to see you again. We either need to come up or you need to come down. It feels so good connecting with you just virtually. Um, thank you so much for everything you're doing. And if you guys are interested in learning more from John Wade, he has a plethora of knowledge. Please check out the YouTube link. It is in the episode description. And also you can go to his website. You can work with him virtually. He has a newsletter. He has all kinds of awesome stuff. So John, thank you for your time and everything you're doing for dogs. Yeah, good to see you again, John. It's been a while. It really was. We got to do it again. We all right, do it all again. right. Maybe I'll wear a beard when we all get together. Who knows? Maybe by then I'll grow one. It could be a long winter. <laughs> all right, guys. Not. Keep it quirky. <laughs>
<laughs> Thanks, John. Take care. We didn't go to break. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, or callers of this program do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe, the United Podcast Network, its partners or affiliates.